Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to tonight's event. Um, my name is Paul Kelly. I'm the head of the government department and we're hosting tonight's event, which is um, Philip Blonde's Red Tory, How the Left and Right Have Broken Britain and How We Can Fix It. It's our great pleasure to have Philip here tonight because um, we're in the middle of an important election, one that's been heavily dominated by process and polls and so on. And it is particularly interesting to have someone who's bringing ideas to this election, um, either directly through his uh, apparent influence on um, David Cameron's manifesto, but I think also more widely across um, the political spectrum as, as all the parties are starting to wrestle with the fact that how things have gone for the last couple of decades is going to have to change. Philip will introduce himself and he's going to um, uh, speak for about 20 to 30 minutes and then have extensive questions. So we hope to have significant involvement from you um, as we think that's the best way to proceed with the discussion. But let me just tell you a little bit for those of you who don't know who Philip is. Um, this is from the, the blurb at the front of his book. He's a political thinker, writer and journalist. He was a senior lecturer in theology and philosophy at the University of, uh, of Cumbria, and currently he's the uh, founder and director of the think tank Respublica. Um, for those of you who've had the chance to read his book, he draws on a wide variety of influences. One that is of particular interest to me is, uh, is the uh, uh, new orthodox theologian John Milbank, who has some quite interesting things to say about a whole variety of issues, and I think one of the interesting things that we shall see tonight is the way in which um, Philip weaves together a whole variety of uh, debates and discourses which suddenly come to have an important um, impact on the way we think about politics now. So enough um, from me, let me hand you over to Philip Blonde who will introduce his ideas for Red, Red Tory how left and right have broken Britain and how we can fix it. Thank you very much. Thanks. Cheers. <laughs> it's a very pleasant welcome. Thank you. I've, I've had different welcomes um, than that. It's very, you know, whenever you begin to talk, your mind goes immediately white and you just think, I have no idea what to say. And of course, this is nothing different. And then I immediately think, well, what's wrong in our society? And everything floods to the fore of, of uh, our minds, or my mind, and no doubt, no doubt yours. So what I'd like to do is to begin with kind of the fundamental, what I think is radical about Red Tory, and why it's provoked such delightful and hysterical responses uh, from uh, kind of um, extremists on both sides, I think and why I'm delighted about that, and why I think that um, what it offers is, I think, a genuinely new radical middle of, of British politics. Red Tory came from an original thought I had that, that there's something right in the left, that the left, as a tradition, is speaking to something profoundly legitimate, which, broadly speaking, is the illegitimate distribution of wealth, that uh, in some sense being poor is clearly a problem and it's clearly more problematic being poor in our society than it is in others or at least seems to be that um, our 
narrowing of status and our comp increasing competition around status has produced kind of more and more problematic outcomes for those who aren't winners. So that was my sense of what the left was trying to approximate and what was correct. And then there's also something right in the right. And I think there's two elements that are right in the right. And the first is moral conservatism never seemed to me to be reactionary. I couldn't understand why everyone on the left seemed delighted that kind of families were being eroded, the extended family was being undermined, the nuclear family is deeply oppressive, so that's got to go as well. And there seemed to be sort of an abiding left-wing belief that sort of any permanent human relationships were somehow intrinsically oppressive, and especially so if you happen through some disaster to be related permanently to other human beings. Whereas, whereas actually, sort of, if you look at the, the people who are genuinely, genuinely destroyed by our current settlements, and if you look at them globally, the one thing that seems to be common that they lack is they're deeply atomized, they're separated from each other, their social and familial structures are attenuated or absent or not present. And I think this is true in Latin America and it's true in many parts of our, our own country. So it seemed to me that the family was, and the notion of a, a social conservative was a radical progressive idea that really anybody who really cared about the poor should also endorse. Then there's another third element of, uh, of the right that I thought was right, and that was the belief in free markets. It seemed to me that the state has singularly failed uh, in both Britain and the US to really solve poverty. After we've had the state, and the state was invented as a sort of a proxy, uh, a, uh, a way to save the poor from their lot, um, it doesn't seem to have done a terribly good job. And what I was quite interested in is the utopic thought of the right, in many ways not the actual thought of the right, that envisaged a world of widely dispersed capital, multiple centres of innovation and advantage, thought that ownership and ownership of goods was, was necessary for a genuinely free market economy. But what we've got in terms of our current right and our current left is none of that. What we've got on the right is kind of teenage minds uh, who are pro-market, but they haven't even read their own market history. Many of those on the right thinks it's in, think that it's impossible to have a private sector monopoly. And if you actually speak to them and uh, they say, no, no, monopolies can only be state. There's no such thing as a private sector monopoly. This struck me as clearly insane, um, clearly ideological, and demonstrably wrong. There are many private sector monopolies. And what's odd about those monopolies is they lock people out from the transformative power of markets and capital. So I sort of was thinking, well, what's all going on? The left is disempowering people through the state, and the right is disempowering people through um, its economic capture by elites of, of markets and what markets distribute. And I thought, well, there's something in common between our two currently uh, conceived dominant models. There's something common between the idea of a statism and the way for the left to achieve its end is statism, and there's something common between that and the right that thinks the only way to deliver uh, any social goods at all is through a pure market philosophy. And I thought, well, what's, what's in common is, is that if you're actually without wealth, without skills, without uh, the ability to own or trade, 
both the state and the market screw you over. Both of them will keep you exactly where you are and neither will advance you. But then the question is, is if the purported difference between left and right is actually putative and not real, which is what I think it is, um, then what is the legacy that links them? And to me, what we've really been governed by over the last, well, since the 45 settlement, is really a, a version of liberalism. And it's a perverse liberalism. It's not the liberty of the ancients, it's the liberty of the moderns. And what seems to me is that liberalism in a certain guise has taken over the left and produced the collective aspect of liberalism, and it's taken over the right and produced the individualistic aspect of liberalism. And what's interesting to me about this perverse form of liberalism is, first of all, it doesn't deliver liberty, and secondly, and most uh, importantly, what it actually delivers is the destruction of human relationships, the destruction of the middle ground. Because liberalism is so profoundly individualist in its modern format that in order to cope with all the social excesses and the costs of that individualism, it goes collectivist and must go collectivist. And you see this oscillation um, in Marx, in Rousseau, you see it in nominalism, where I think it has its true origin, and you see it in our political settlement today. So to sum up and to, to bring it to the fore, what we've actually seen, and to put it very simply, is massive concentrations in, of power in the hands of the state, massive concentrations of power in the hands of the market. The state is articulated as the way, as means of freeing the poor. That's why you have the rhetoric of equality of opportunity, while all the time the real opportunity for those at the bottom gets get the hole through which people can, can jump to advance themselves and to rise up the social ladder gets narrower and narrower and more and more concentrated. The same with the market, underneath the guise of the rhetoric of free markets, what do we actually have? Massive capture of market mechanisms by vested interest. Monopolies developing and monopoly settlements developing in, in many, many of our markets and our market spaces. And so Red Tory is essentially a kind of a, a new form or an attempt to think a new form of left-right political analysis, which is what would it be to have a politics that really delivered assets and wealth to the bottom half of the population? What would it really look like? Given that the state, in my view, doesn't do that and doesn't do that in the Anglo-Saxon settlement and doesn't secure the bottom half of society, then the state can no longer be the vehicle through which we save the poor from their lot. And given also that it can't be the market, because what the market that we've produced, and I'll talk more about this in a moment, has, yes, in some sense it's delivered very real gains, particularly for those at the top, but for the middle and, and the bottom half of the population, it's subjected them to incredible burdensome rises in debt and a new condition of serfdom, where in effect deployable or investment capital has been totally removed from the bottom half of our population. So it seems to me that both vehicles that the left and the right have, have uh, tried to come up with have actually failed on their own terms and are no longer deliverable. So if one is left-wing, one now has to think, in my view, of a completely new model for emancipation that doesn't involve the night watchman state, it's not the obliteration of the state, but a profoundly different role has to be conceived for the state, and it has to be a new type of civic settlement. 
If one is truly right-wing, then we need to think of social conservatism, not as some sort of reactionary assault on minorities or on one-parent families, but actually as social conservation, conservation and propagation and extension of human relationships. And second, thirdly, rather, again on the right, we need to rethink our market model. We need to rethink what actually constitutes a market and why markets promise so much and actually in our settlement haven't delivered for the majority, well, of the bottom half of, of our society. So that was the that bro very broad brush. That's the sense that, that what I really want is real radi economic radicalism coupled with real social conservation. That's Red Tory, and I think that's the new future middle of a transformative British politics. And, it, and Red Tory, as I said in uh, a debate I had with Maurice Glassman, uh, that's just out in this week's prospect, or month's prospect, I don't think it's a party political idea. I think it is the idea of what the future could be, and it could be adopted by the left or the right, but I do feel that the modern Conservative Party and what David Cameron is trying to do goes a hell of a long way towards actually creating the possibility of a genuinely radical economic settlement coupled with a genuine renewal or social preservation, conservation and extension of our society. So that's all, all the broad brush um, uh, accounts. So let's go to kind of, if you forgive me, let's go to the kind of the heart of um, what I'm arguing. Now it seems to me, just a you know, ride back a, sort of a 800 years in history, if one thinks that modern liberalism, not classical liberalism, which I like because classical liberalism is founded on the notion of virtue and is founded on the notion of liberty coming from the establishment of prior norms. In fact, when Benjamin Constant talked about the liberty of the ancients and the liberty of the moderns, what he was contrasting was for the ancients, an ancient liberty required prior norms that people thought were objectively true. Precisely because nobody in, uh, up until, uh, well, up, and, up until medieval nominalism, actually, it's not Descartes, up until medieval nominalism, nobody doubted there was an objective order. Nobody doubted there were objective values out there in the universe, which in some mysterious and mediated way, human cognition grasped. What's interesting about um, Plato is in Platonic thought, sophistry is derided. It's the position you get through. It's what you must move through in order to have true discernment about the nature of objective universals that are in our world. In the modern world, sophistry is thought of as the ethical good. Sophistry is thought of as that which you must aim for, because it's held that sophistry is what alone can guarantee you peace. And what I want to argue is actually postmodern kind of relativist sophistry only serves the interests of the wealthy and the powerful, the well-positioned and the already enriched. Therefore, real politics is about the recovery of this objective sense of order and the transmission of that objective sense of order into modern politics. Okay, so what is that traditional sense of order? Well, that traditional sense of order is a notion of difference by degree and a hierarchy of goods. 
So whichever, wherever you were positioned in, in classical political philosophy, until we had the disaster of the contractualist theory later, which I'll come to, everybody thought they were in a world of real relationships, real universals, and an appreciation of the good, what Plato talked about, the good beyond being, the good that in some sense ordered all those things. Why does this matter? This sounds abstract and kind of nonsense. Well, think of something very simple. Think of, any, think of the value you most value. It might be life, it might be equality. The very thing that you most value can only be valued if you privilege it above all other values. Think of equality, for instance. Do we believe in equality of haircuts? Do we believe in equality of fashion? Do we believe in equality of income? The very fact that you would privilege, I suggest, the latter over the first two options is already an act of privileging. You already think some goods are more important than other goods. The good of life is more important than um, the good of fashion. And even to have that privileging is already to suggest an objective order within which you then want to be political. In fact, even to have equality and to argue for a politics of equality is to suggest that some things are more important than others. So politics, in its classical sense, was always founded on a relationship between the, the one and the many. Politics, in the classical sense, always required a hierarchical sense of the, be the good over evil, the better over the worse, the preferable over the far less preferable, and the healthy over the damaged. And what classical politics always was, was a relationship between hierarchy and democracy. A relationship between um, the goods we as a whole society wish to create, and how to extend those goods to all other human beings. And one could argue that um, this is crucial to the Greek inheritance, this is crucial to the Christian inheritance. Now what actually happened with um, in intellectual history is that we lost the, the, the democratic sense. Actually it happened first in religion, with theological voluntarism, with William of Ockham and Duns Scotus, who, stopped see, who started to see God essentially as a sovereign who had absolute rights over everybody else. Because they thought that's what gave us piety, that's what gave us um, a sense of the real transcendent. What that then meant, if God becomes so, so all-powerful, is what God then gives to the world becomes completely unimportant. In order to stress God's power, what these people had to do was cut God off or the hierarchical principle from the rest of the world. By so doing, what they essentially did was write God as if God was a more powerful version of an atomized individual. This fracturing of human relationships meant that relationality, i.e. the relation I have to objective goods, then becomes completely, not only atomized, but dissolved. When that happens, people stop thinking of human relationships as decisive and start thinking of individual will as decisive. And the path then from, from because when, once you think of God as outside of human relations, you move very quickly to thinking of God as oppressive. Once you think of God as oppressive, then you want to be freed of God. And that's roughly the path from European Christianity through to the Enlightenment. You then create um, an idea of what opposes an oppressive God is a liberated individual. 
Now this liberated individual, this is where we get into modern political theory, is what lies at the source of our contemporary problems. So one example, and the example I write about in the book, is Rousseau. So Rousseau, and this is another point, individualism is primarily a left-wing dictum. It's a left-wing thought. Radical individualism is, is leftist. The fact that it's been adopted by the right is just part of their historical misreading of just about everything. And what Rousseau did is said he said primordially in the beginning, there is just my will. And because there is just my will, society, or the world of others, essentially is uh, an imposition, an imprisonment. It chains my will. Now, if you create then, if you have the basis of your political philosophy, a non-relational, atomized will, then you create real problems when you try and form society. And actually, what's interesting about socialism is it's incredibly bad on society. And what's interesting about socialism is that is why socialism, when it thinks society, often creates incredibly totalitarian and incredibly oppressive situations indeed. Why does it do that? Because it's not socialist. Socialism can't think society. Socialism is profoundly individualist. And when it does think society, it thinks of the collective as essentially an aggregation of that prior individual. It thinks of the collective as individualism writ large. So Rousseau's general will, which is essentially, he never explains how the freedom of one can be the freedom of many. And actually, if you're, I know you're doing political theory, so I'll be, you know, it's Leibnizian, it's sort of pre-established harmony. It just so happens that my individual will coincides with yours. Yes, in the real world, this isn't true at all. And in the real world, the idea that the, the social world must be exactly like myself is the license for the Red Terror. Then you find this repeated in Marx. If you read early Marx, profoundly individualist, profoundly Rousseauian individualist, who then thinks the state is what gives you society. What is this itself a parallel of? Social contract theory. Uh, Locke and Hobbes. Hobbes' Leviathan is again another fictional creature. And it's the state that creates society. It's the state through social contract theory that moves in and takes individuals and binds them into relationships with one another. So what does this mean? This means the left is already fatally compromised by a commitment to a rampant individualism. And in that commitment to a rampant individualism, it becomes committed to statism. Because the state is the only way it can deal with all the consequences of that anarchic um, outcome. So you have two readings of Rousseau, which you'll probably know. You have the statist French revolutionary reading of Rousseau, and you have Proudhon's kind of anarchic uh, libertarian reading. And they're both the same. So what I want to suggest, and what I've tried to suggest in the book, is that actually individualism and statism are the same thing. They're two sides of the same coin. The more radically individualist you are, the more you will require a collectivist settlement. And if you really want to break with an authoritarian state and an anarchic individualism, then you have to recover what was lost. And that recovery is relationship. And therefore, what I'm interested in, since I oppose both kind of anarchic, insane, right-wing, atomized individualism, and the reason I oppose it is because I'm opposed to the state. And for me, the state is the collective resolution of all the political problems of individualism. And then individualism is a response to all the political problems of the state.
So let me kind of now go non-abstract. I'm sorry for that, I apologize, that was probably a bit of a nightmare, but nonetheless, I think it's important to try and articulate that. Let's repeat this in British history. So what is the first moment of this kind of oscillation between individualism and statism we see in British history? Well, for me, it's the 1945 settlement. For me, what happened in Britain, and we did have precursor moments, such as the Bloomsbury Group and so on. But what happened in history is we, had, we got our statism, in British history, we got our statism first. In 1945, the state nationalised society. What it did is it destroyed all the institutions of human relationship. And those institutions were all the civil settlements of British society, and they were all mutual. Doesn't mean they're the same, but they were reciprocal civic institutions where people didn't have one-way claim rights, but they had ideas of what they should do in order to get X and what they would do, what they would receive um, as a response for doing, for doing that in terms of Y. We had all sorts of intermediate institutions. The 45 Labour settlement aborted all of those institutions. And that statism then meant that actually people were individuated by the state. So people became individual recipients of welfare benefits and didn't need to associate with others in their locality. They didn't need any horizontal relationships with anybody else in order to get their entitlement. More problematically, this one-way entitlement thesis then meant the relationship only went one way. So the state truly created this sort of, for the first time in the British settlement, the idea you could get something for nothing. Once this kind of individualism was let loose and let free, and in some sense was then allied with what happened in the 60s with the rise of consumer capitalism, then it became really, really dangerous. And the new left in the 1960s, from Marcuse to R.D. Lang <coughs> to Philip Larkin, were all about destroying tradition, settlement, all the, all the wisdom all the wisdom of history was dissolved in this period, where the idea was the, the individual was paramount, and it was the interiorization of that individual, and it was the pleasure principle incarnated in desire that was held to be most fully expressed if it was out limit, without orientation, and without telos. Now, that's new left paradigm of... Uh, of a kind of an anthropology that was radically cut off from everything except itself. That's what the new right spoke to. That's what the new right built on. The left created the conditions for the new right. It's those people who came up in the late 1960s, the baby boomers, I think David Willits has written so brilliantly about, they were the modern figures that Thatcherism spoke to. And then you have a fake opposition throughout the rest of you know, subsequent British history between an individualism that pretends to be opposed to the state and a statism that pr pretends to correct individualism. And this oscillates its, all, its way through and produces from uh, 79 onwards all the beginnings of all of the radical inequalities we've talked about. This then enters blurism, where the two are held to be in kind of mutual and harmonious you can be really individual as long as you have a really powerful state because the really powerful state will do all your moral work by proxy for you and you'll be allowed to pursue your own kind of utilitarian ends 
um, in whatever way. But what I think the present financial crisis has exposed is the fact that, um, um, I just realised I've already talked half an hour and I thought that was only going for 10 minutes, uh, sorry. <laughs> only have a quarter of the way through. Um, don't worry, I won't go on. But what this has then exposed is, the, is, the, is that actually that that whole situation was gaming the state, gaming long term, the long-term condition and health of our body politic. And that that's what the crisis of 2007-2008 represents. It represents uh, a death, I think, of both of what was wrong in the left, the st its statism, and what is wrong in the right. Not markets, because I'm a pro-market thinker, but neoliberal construal of markets. So for me, therefore, we have a unique opportunity, philosophically, to recover the idea of relationship as being the most important political category, allied with an idea of a hierarchy of goods, and a new politics of civitas. A new settlement that in some sense tries to avoid what rampant individualism and rampant statism have produced. So that's kind of red Tory. Now, if this is to be more than abstraction, it's got to genuinely deliver. And what's exciting is that some of the ideas we've already suggested at ResPublica have already been adopted. The idea of breaking up public services, not in order to have a new round of compulsive competitive tendering, but breaking them up so often some of the very poorest, the people who are at the lowest wages in our society, can actually own and create for the first time a stakeholder economy where they have both ownership and professional control. Or the idea that we can now create new mutual settlements where we can purchase through community right to buys goods shared goods that we can hold in common and in trusts that can be used to leverage new mutual models for delivering all sorts of pro-social social enterprises. But I think that the really radical um, idea that's present in, um, in Red Tory is in a sense liberating, delivering two things, delivering capital to those at the bottom and lowering the barriers to market entry. If you actually look at what's happened to the bottom half of society, um, in, in 1976 they had 12% of the liquid wealth, by 2003 it was 1%. If you look at what happened even during the Blur period, the level of debt that was experienced by people went up by something like 200%. If you look at the workers' share of GDP, i.e. What, what cut did wage workers get of um, economic growth, it was at its highest in the late 1960s, roughly around 68. Both America and Britain ever since, the share of workers' share of GDP has been falling. In America, after adjusting for inflation, if you're a single earner of uh, uh, of an unskilled household, your wages are at the same level as they were in the late 1970s. Wages have been stagnating for certain groups for that long. So what are we going to do if we're going to speak to this problem? We also need to realise that there's another problem. And that is, not only do we not own, but we can't actually enter the market to create and open new businesses. Well, what stops us? Well, first of all, state regulation. 
is a huge barrier to ordinary people setting up businesses and creating the conditions for their own advancement. State regulation absolutely massively helps the corporates because it allows them, they're the only people who are big enough to answer all the diversity criteria, all the health and safety, and so on and so forth. Paradoxically, the very groups that such legislation is intended to help are the ones that are most excluded and can't participate because they don't have an equality agenda. You know, they don't have policies they can give. So they can't access, for instance, public procurement. And if you can't access public procurement, it's such a large part of our, of our economy, well, you're never really going to grow, you're never really going to deliver. And actually, that's what's already happening in British uh, society. Something like, um, something like well over three-quarters of British businesses are just sole traders. So the massive number of sole traders, massive aspiration for ownership and entrepreneurship, but they can't grow. We can't grow the, the middle economy, the SMEs that continental Europe and uh, Southeast Asia has done so successfully. So the state, and through its regulation, stops people accessing markets. But what else stops people accessing markets? Monopolies. Now, how have we created, under the guise of free markets, massive new monopolies? Have we created you know, monopolies in the retail sector, in the pub sector, in the internet, uh, in search engines? Wherever you look, you see not perhaps so much a monopoly, but oligopoly. Two or three dominant players. Well, the major thing we've done is we've adopted a Chicago school model of what competition is for. The Chicago school, who, by the way, of course, were behind uh, the, uh, much of what passes for neoliberalism, essentially argued that price utility was the sole end of competition. The cheaper the goods we produce, the more advantageous it is for the consumer. Now, by definition, a monopoly will deliver you cheaper goods. Why? Because it benefits from the economies of scale. Why? Because many monopolies gain the tax system and actually benefit far more from subsidy than many small and medium enterprises. This capture by so much of our markets by monopolies is a double whammy to any attempt to create or grow. And this isn't even true just now for Britain. It was also true in Austria in the 1880s and 1890s where they had a long 20-year depression that was caused by monopoly capture of uh, innovation. And only by the effective introduction of antitrust laws and new models of competition could they actually break that. So I think the radical politics for economically are recapitalization, which I think means new ways to access public money spent on the poor, that largely speaking has just kept them poor, um, and new radical pro-competition laws to break open the market and challenge vested interest. That, I think, will actually deliver much of what the state has manifestly failed to deliver. On the social side, I think what's so kind of bizarre and so worrying is that so many in our society celebrate social fragmentation as if it's a new form of freedom, as if it's a new form of liberty, as if libertarianism uh, conducted in a personal level has no costs. Yet this is a complete disaster for those in the bottom half of society. Take the issue of marriage. Marriage, largely speaking, is to the advantage of women. It gives them legal rights. It gives all sorts of stability. It, in some very important and true sense, secures people. 
What's interesting is that marriage is now a social justice issue. The, the aspiration to marry is equal across all income groups. And yet the only people marrying, or the trend for people who marry is now predominantly middle class. Working class people find it more and more difficult to marry. Not least because men no longer conceive of themselves of having mutual or reciprocal responsibilities. And women are often left holding not only the baby, but also the, the necessity of working. They often lose three times over. So what we need, I think, is to stop the kind of libertarian um, delight in the dissolution of our social relationships and understand that if we really care about the bottom half of society, we've got to understand social conservation or social conservatism as progressive and not as oppressive. So, <clears throat> to conclude, I think and it's 40 minutes, so that's about right, isn't it? So I got something right. <laughs> These are just initial preambles, you know. Um, to conclude, I think something like a recovery of, um, of an, a language of morality that doesn't make everybody cringe is, is profoundly politically important. If we lose the idea of morality as transformative, we lose everything that's radical about our political past. Slavery wasn't abandoned because it was uneconomic. It was abandoned because people said it was wrong. Women weren't liberated because people suddenly just felt like it on a sunny Tuesday. They were liberated because people thought their oppression was wrong. The idea of things being wrong is the transformative political idea. And if we forget that, if we think of morality as just the language of vested interest, we lose our politics. And what I want to do is I want to try and in some sense reorient morality away from condemnation, which I think it's, it's sort of been happily pushed into, again by liberals who like morality to be just condemnation because it allows their power and their interest to go unchallenged, to once more become a visionary language of how we have to live. And that to me is what I mean by social conservatism or social conservation. And that, allied with a radical emancipatory economics that delivers on what the right promised but has failed to deliver through neoliberalism, is what Red Tory is about. And I think it's the most radical option available at the moment, and I think it will be the future middle of genuinely transformative politics. Thank you very much. So I'd, happy to take questions. I'd like to yes, I'd like to throw the uh, floor open. We have a microphone going round, so if you could be patient until the microphone comes, because it would be better for recording it. So if you could indicate any, who would like to ask a question. It was all settled then. <laughs> Convinced everyone. Thank you very much. That was very interesting. Um, I think emotionally many people would agree with much of what you've said. Um, my question is about practicality in a global economic world, in the, for that phrase, uh, forgive the phrase. Um, you've talked about emancipatory economics, at, arguably at a local level. Again, there's lots of potential benefit in that. 
and dismantling the power of the oligarchy of monopoly, which again, I think a lot of us feel that might be a good thing to do. How would that present Britain in a highly competitive, how can Britain approach that in a highly competitive global market by breaking up the monopoly and the, and the oligarchies who maybe have misused their position or abused their position, nonetheless to bring wealth, wealth which has been shared, albeit unevenly. How can we retain the levels of wealth that we aspire to and expect in a global world if we're breaking up that competitive advantage, a competitive advantage which will, be, which will, which will become even more severe um, it, when you compare the costs of production of the, yep. uh, of the Western world, as it were, to the developed world. Uh, th thank you very much. Um, the last 30 years has kind of been a lie about, about gains. Recent report by McKinsey uh, added up all of our debt in the UK, corporate, public and private. And a conclusion from the McKinsey report was um, all of our debt is 468% of GDP. 468% of GDP. I don't know if any of you saw news like last night, but the terror of what we were going to have to do to public services when it was peaking on current expectations just about 80% of GDP, not 460, 80% of GDP was stark and terrifying and frightening. And actually, I think it'll hit higher than 80% of GDP in this country. What we decided in 1979 was that we were going to become a monopoly economy. And what uh, we did is we said to the City of London, we said, you will be the only driver, and we are utterly indifferent to anything else that happens in our economy. What this meant uh, is complete economic disaster, and we're just at the beginning of the recognition of that. Andrew Haldane, who's a brilliant economist and head of, I think this is right, of um, Monetary Stability for the Bank of England, has written a couple of influential, highly influential reports. In one paper, he pointed the following fact out. From 1900 to the late 1970s, uh, the state underwrote, roughly speaking, its banking liabilities about 50% of GDP fairly constant from 1900 to the 1970s. From the 1970s up to the crisis, the state's underwriting of banking liabilities has risen tenfold. It's now five times GDP. What that essentially, why that happened, is the state has progressively insured more and more aspects of investment banking activity. Deposit insurance, liquidity insurance, capital insurance. The state has socialised the risk of banking activity. So there is no risk in banking activity. The most they can lose would be their stake, and even then they don't even lose their original stake because the stake itself is so implicated in the real economy, that has to be bailed out as well. What that means is essentially massive monopolisation of capital itself. Not only have we seen a monopolisation of industry, we've seen a monopolisation of capital. If you just have liquid capital, all you seek is a high rate of return. Why would you go out to Clacton? Why would you go to Newcastle? Why would you go to Liverpool and build a factory? That's hard. That's real entrepreneurial capital. That's patient capital. You lose money. 
The state, by underwriting investment banking activity, has essentially drained investment capital from the rest of the country. And, and not only has it done that, with the breaking of the system, the, banks li the state's liabilities are now, they've taken them all on. Now a lot of them, we don't even know the value of the assets that we've now underwritten. Not only because of the securitization process, but also because many of them are secured on American property values that, by the way, are still falling in certain cities. So we don't know the leverage relationship, and we don't even know their ultimate um, value. But more worryingly, what this means is that unless we remove the state's underwriting of investment capital, we can't price in capital to the localities. We can't make it worth its while for capital to go out and build factories and build new infrastructure. And we're now, we're so unbalanced, we're not even in the condition of creating the new infrastructure for what Britain's going to do. And it's a very real question. The whole of continental Europe has been doing something kind of much more about infrastructure than us for decades. I mean, it hasn't worked the last 20 or 30 years, but in terms of that infrastructure, it's phenomenal. Germany is still, I think, the world's second largest exporter of manufactured goods, only just recently eclipsed by China. So I think we're in real trouble, and I don't think we've gained. What we've actually done is we've borrowed from the future. And so I, I doubt the sources of our wealth. I think they're putative, and I think they're taken from the future. Um, just a question about the, um, sort of the durability and versatility of the ideological blueprint that you're presenting. I think one of the problems that ideologies or ideological blueprints have confronted in the past is that if they're not implemented fully, then you don't get the results that you're after. For example, Thatcher didn't implement you know, neoliberalism like Milton Friedman wanted her to implement it, and you can say that Blair and now Brown didn't implement the third way in the way that Anthony Giddens yeah. wanted them to implement it. So how durable is the blueprint that you're presenting? Like, if, for example, only 10% of it is implemented or only bits and pieces are taken. Can it still achieve its desired effect, or does it need to be implemented fully? Otherwise, um, it won't be effective or could be counterproductive, in fact. Um, very interesting question. On one level, no ideology is ever implemented fully, and it's ideological to think it will. I think that as long as you can achieve some gains and they work, they grow by example, and in the end one hopes they become dominant. But I think that it's more dangerous than that. Um, I had a conversation last night with uh, Paul Mason, you know, the Newsnight reporter, and what's interesting is I, I was sort of arguing that that until we recover social solidarity for the bottom third of our country, these people will be permanently destroyed. Until we, we can recover norms, social norms, social conservation for these people, they will always be servile. He agreed. And what he said was that when he grew up, and he comes from a strong working class family, there was no organized crime, there was religion, and there was great solidarity. Now he goes to those same areas, and there's very little religion, there's no organised labour and there's massive organised crime. And until we can create a culture that binds in normative groups, until we can create binding groups for the bottom third of the population, I don't think anything is achievable for them. Now, lots of what I'm trying to do is do a political economy of groups for those at the bottom. So I'm not particularly interested in units of money that give poor people a little bit more. 
That won't change anything. But I am interested in creating a political economy where they have to associate with one another and create modes of behaviour and modes of trust because I think that then builds the social capital that can actually make real capital possible for them. So in that sense, from the bottom up, you need both. And if you don't have social conservation, as I call it, it won't work. Good evening. I'm interested in the practical implications of what you're saying. I wonder if you could come down a little bit, a little bit more detail sure. of what it actually means in terms of policy. I mean, you're talking, for example, of uh, the difficulty of market entry and monopolies and so forth. And so I think of Google or Microsoft or Ford or, you know, it's going to be very difficult for me as an individual to challenge organizations of that size. So I'm not quite sure how you get to where you want to get to in terms of that sort of detail. Uh, the other thing I'd like to ask you about is the institution of marriage, which is a great kind of political issue, um, particularly in the present election and the kind of things that David Cameron was talking about. Are you of the view that we should pay people or reduce taxes for people who get married? And, and making it advantageous from a fiscal tax point of view for people to get married. So, thank you. Thank you. Um, let me give an example. I was talking to a collection of food, local food uh, suppliers, and they have an organisation of, you know, the collection of local food suppliers, you know, independent retailers. Now the interesting thing is when you go into a local shop, it's often pretty awful. Um, everything costs a hell of a lot more and you kind of long for the supermarket. Now what's interesting is that's because the supply chains for those, uh, for those supermarkets so that they can actually offer cheap goods have often been bought out by the supermarkets themselves. There's often classic um, monopolistic and cartel behavior in buying out the big uh, reducing the economies of scale for any supplier groups or any other retail groups. That's how it's operated. Same with land, same with the use of car parking, which by the way doesn't attract a, um, um, is the most advantageous thing in a local environment that a superstore can have, but doesn't attract the rateable value that reflects its true advantage. So all other minor retailers in the centre of town essentially can't compete because their local car parks are policed by kind of local authority people who are desperate to give you £90 tickets. So nobody parks there, they park down the local supermarket and get out, nobody bothers them, and they do all the shopping there. So what I'm interested in is, is, in some sense, revealing state subsidy for monopolies, which is very real and happens uh, all across the piece. And I'm also interested in looking at what stops small and medium enterprises from growing. Now, I'm not anti-big business at all. I think I quite like big business, as I've said. Um, and we need some big business, but we've got to change the relationship of big business to small business. And we've got to talk about market making rather than market dominating. Um, to go to another example, if you look at contracting out, so the dominant Thatcherite thing uh, during the 1980s was, was we need to save money, uh, we cut wages by 10%, we'll do it by compulsory competitive tendering. 
We pushed them out and essentially the companies gained the difference. Not always, but mostly between the, the conditions and rewards of workers when they're in-house and the conditions and rewards of workers when under CCT. Um, I don't like that. What I'm far more interested in is, as I've argued, public sector co-ops. Letting people themselves, workers themselves, take ownership of the budget that they deliver so they can deliver more effective savings and have an economic stake in the return. I think that's far more radical, distributive, productive and creates a whole proliferation of social and economic goods. So two examples. Marriage. I favour marriage. And I think that that actually what there is in the tax credit system and the benefit system is a couple penalty, whereby if you come together, you actually lose money. And I think um, I'm very much in favour of not having a couple penalty. And most European tax systems favour marriage, because marriage is clearly a social good. It's a demonstrable social good. It's far better for children if their parents are married. Nobody doubts this. What's interesting in our society is the society that cares for children and is hysterical about paedophilia never talks about marriage in that way. And I don't think it's wrong for a state to, in some sense, signal symbolically the importance of long-term relationships. That said, I don't think we want to be in a situation of restricting I'm very pro-family. There are other ways we can be pro-family. I would like to think of ways in which we could make it far more relational, so people who aren't married or are one-parent families can in some sense be, also be rewarded or their well-being fostered. So I don't see it as an either-or, uh, but I do, don't have any problems with um, a state seeing a social good as a social good and incentivising it. Um, it was a very good speech, very erudite, just like a book. Um, I just want to ask a question, what role does debt play in all this? So something like social impact bonds, are you averse to them purely on the basis that debt serves a certain point in perhaps capitalising social enterprises, but at the same time it's at odds with this notion that you want to recapitalise the poor and you've got a big kind of emphasis on capital formation. Yeah. Uh, second point, um, Things like the savings gateway in the election manifesto for Labour proposed for up to 31s, child trust fund, uh, these are all steps towards recapitalising the poor. These are also things that seemingly are at odds with vast sways of the Tory parliamentary party. Um, so to what extent do you really align yourself with those kinds of elements within the Tory party? And to my mind, the narrative that you weave seems more... Uh, at home with a kind of Gateskill notion of laborism and traditional laborism, uh, the laborism the of the kind of Attlee cabinet, as much as you misalign it, they were overwhelmingly in favor of things like families and capital yeah, no, corporal true. punishment. That's true. Um, and I do think that you, you sort of miss out the technological determinist notion um, with regards to why, why was the family so uh, subject to dissolution in the 60s. It was overwhelmingly because of birth control, not because of some overwhelming new left liberal, louche, urbane narrative that the working man missed out on. I think that's totally missing the point. I think it was overwhelmingly technological. Um, but I do think your ideas resonate. And yeah, so the point was about debt, Tory position on baby bonds and sure. uh, savings gateways. And then secondly, to what extent do you think you can perhaps sit in the future with a reformed 
mutualist, socially conservative notion of Labourism, perhaps, post-Brown? About four questions there, and, 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 and they were all very good. I'm not anti-debt. You know, let's be very clear, I'm in favour of poor people having mortgages. Um, I think that um, one of the, I'm in favour of the Community Reinvestment Act. I'm in favour of uh, the Social Investment Bank. I'm in favour of using debt for pro-social end. You know, that's how the modern economy works. If you have an economy without debt, you kind of don't have an economy that can grow. What we have had, though, is anti-social debt. And pro-social debt um, would allow us to do all manner of things. For instance, I'm very interested in the L3C uh, company organization, which has now passed in, in quite a few American states. And what this does is this allows differential returns for investment. Because normally, if you're a charity or you're a charitable foundation, you can only invest either by direct grants or kind of in, in another charity itself. What this new organisation allows you to do is allows charities to invest in companies that can also be used for private profit. But those companies have to have charitable aims. And what the charities or foundations do, and they can be literally billions, is buy out the risk. And so then you can create social enterprises that price in investment and private capital. Then suddenly, across a whole swathe of, uh, of our country, which has had no development, where people have been starved of capital and money, you create a debt leverage mechanism to drive in private sector money that could really give people a chance of improving everything. So that's the answer to the first question. Savings gateway child trust funds, I'm on record as defending them. Uh, I think uh, the child trust fund is one of the most effective pro-capitalisation measures that uh, we have. Remember, it's the Liberal Democrats who want to strip it entirely. The Tories just do it for, will keep it for those below 16,000 uh, a year. Um, I'm, uh, we've got a big report coming out on savings. Um, and I, I think that creating new means to save uh, is completely crucial to a true conservative vision of an empowered citizenry that is free to actually pursue um, its own ownership, culture and settlement. Gate skill and labourism, you're quite right. What I missed out was the pre-war option that wasn't taken. When we essentially went for Fabian, we being Britain, went for Fabian centralism, we destroyed all the other kind of non-statist socialist traditions. And it's there in the 19th century, it's there in the co-op co movement, it's there in mutualist and working class uh, labour um, institutions. And again, in prospect, I, I don't deny that. I think that that's right. But I think that, that I find it very hard to think that actually Labour can go that far. I think Labour has gone too far down an individualist and libertarian path. And I really don't see it coming back. It, it will always be focused around the choice agenda. And so I don't see it as a party that has helped the poor, that will help the poor, that will in any sense deliver the social transformation we need because the thinking just isn't there. Whereas I see a radical, renewed, organic, one-nation Toryism as the most emancipatory offering we have. I, I really do. It's not fake. You know, and I argue, I do politics. So that means I argue with loads of people who hate me. You know, and that means like, you know, generating, look at the lunatic reviews, you know, that have been of Red Tory on the left. Localism means Nazism. 
fantastic. On the right, he's a Marxist. I mean, what, what's fabulous, you know, about these people is, A, they're so ignorant. B, they're so ideological that they actually can't see beyond their own settlements to a new settlement. And I really think politically we're at a new settlement. And I'm not saying, I, God knows, that you know, this is just the beginning. But what I'm trying to create is a new 21st century, not kitsch, not ruralist fantasy, urban modern account of a new civic economy. To answer your, your final question, I, of course birth control paid a point. Um, but I'm not, this isn't a weird remark about hippies. I know everybody thinks it is. Do you know Jonathan Rose's book, The History of the, the Intellectual History of the English Working Class? Yeah, it's, it's a brilliant book. And the last chapter of Rose's book is about the Bohemians. And he says the Bohemians destroyed a working class settlement. The Bohemians made, and the avant garde, or the hippies, essentially individualised all forms of working class self-identification. And I actually do think that very small groups of people can have massive, massive, powerful cultural effects. And the hippies, or, or kind of the new left, were actually walking in one with individuating consumer capitalism. And so, so other countries have had birth control and haven't had the, the precipitate hemorrhaging of social capital we have. So I would like to sort of, I would like to defend my thesis. And I don't think it's a weird thesis. I think it's just new. Hi, um, thank you very much for that. It's really interesting. Um, I just about followed all of the crazy uh, run-through of various political theory, but I'm quite a practical person, and I, there were some a few questions that came to mind sure. throughout the the, uh, the speech. One's about how you describe the 1945 changes and the nationalisation of public services. Yeah. Um, from what I understand, the, there was a need for... Um, more universal coverage, more consistent coverage, particularly, and I'm thinking here in healthcare and the nationalisation of the healthcare service, um, and you described the move from a reciprocal relationship-based society where the people were reliant on horizontal relationships, and I'm thinking particularly here how, it, how you, that which you described as a negative process was negative for those you claim to be most interested in, those at the bottom, and that that nationalisation process disadvantaged them? Is that what you're implying? Mm -hmm. um, so that would be interesting to know. And then the second thing is you talk quite a lot, and this has already been picked up on, towards the end about the value of marriage, and you stated that marriage in of itself is beneficial to children. I question whether the marriage process is the bit you mean, but you, marriage as a concept is innately state-sanctioned, and your idea about not focusing on the big state but then also having marriage as a key crux of the relationships in society seems somewhat to be Thank contradictory. Um, I'll answer the first, last question first. Marriage is, has never, marriage is one of the anthropological, um, almost anthropological universals. I mean, there's different ways to be married. And, you know, there's different way, you, you used to be able to be married by sort of saying certain words to one another and it varies in cultural traditions, but it's clearly not, it might be state, it's only state sanctioned because it's pre-state and it's, it's a common human settlement, which is nothing other than um, the idea and the pledging of a sort of permanent commitment with the necessity of childbirth. That's what it is, that anthropologically. And um, I don't see why people 
find it problematic. I mean, maybe it's a blindness in my own thinking, and I'm certainly not trying to force anybody to do it. But I, what I think, what I think, his, his, I guess this is what. Unless you believe in things, they tend not to happen. Like, so unless you believe that the person you're dealing with is trustworthy, it's very unlikely you'll engage in business activity with them. So for instance, there's been quite a lot of work recently showing levels of trust and levels of investment activity. The higher the level of trust, the more investment activity is, the greater the social good. So kind of soft outcomes really matter for hard outcomes. And I think when, if you're in a society that no longer believes in permanent bonds, no longer believes in the idea of permanence, you're sort of incapable of dealing with difficulty. You're incapable of dealing with fracture. You're incapable of dealing with, with change. And I think what that actually then condemns modern Britons to is a type of social isolation that's really very extreme and really much higher than other countries. Um, the Michael Young Foundation just did work on loneliness and some 7 million people in our country are identified as, as completely socially isolated. 7 million. And I think this is the mark of the modern. And, um, and the, the consequences of this are really invidious for all forms of social well-being. So I think, as I said, I, be I began at the beginning of saying I value long-term permanent human relationships. For me, marriage is an example of that, and it's something we should encourage, but in no way does it encapsulate it all. So I'd want to encourage any other form of human interaction and permanency that we can. Um, very good. Um, so I think that answered the point about nationalisation and, and uh, marriage. Universalisation in health service, of course you're right. You know, one, if, if, if one's a historical thinker, you can't just say, oh, I'm opposed to, to the state. Of course it was speaking to what was wrong in um, the original uh, provision. It's kind of an unhealthy background rumbling. It's quite odd. It's like there'll be a volcanic sort of disturbance or something. <laughs> You know, a bit worrying, what with Iceland. Um, and I think that, that what you can have is you can have both. In fact, you need both. You need both localization in order to achieve universalization. So let me give you um, an example of this. I, just before, I had a great meeting with the head of housing at Portsmouth City Council. And what he was saying is, because we have standard universalisation for how you do housing repairs, nothing works. So he was giving the example of, um, we have a tap that leaks in, in an apartment block, and I have to go back and fix that tap. The tenant rings up, we go and fix the tap. We do it 20 times, fixing the same washer in the same tap. And no point is there a situation where the person who goes to fix the tap can ring up and say, I think we need a new tap. And if you do, you have to do something called a variation order. And the variation order then has to get the permission of a director of housing services. And so, so what Owen was saying to me is that we did away with all that. And the audit commission came and visited us and gave us four stars. You're doing exactly what everyone in the country should do, but you're doing it far better than anyone else. Four stars. Bang. And he said, well, why have we got such high levels of, of tenant dissatisfaction? We've got a completely universalised service. It's going really well. The Audit Commission loves us, but people hate it. So the Audit Commission then said, well, do more marketing about how good you are. And that will lower... <laughs> this is all serious. He said, that will lower 
the uh, uh, customer dissatisfaction because you'll be telling them they do a good service. So, well, that's not really kind of how I want it to be. So he said, well, what he then did is that, and he said, well, we decided to trust our tradesmen. And we said, go to their tenants, the council tenants, and do whatever they need. Do what you think it needs. Just do it. And obviously this is, I mean, who's ever heard of council doing that? And so uh, tenants would ring up and say, oh God, my window's cracked. And the, the, the new housing service under, this, uh, under Owen's leadership then said, okay, we'll send somebody round. When do you want them to come? We'll fit into your time, quarter past 11. Yeah, we'll be there. Is there anything else you need doing? And they were like, what? Well, uh, well, you know, we're, we're there, we might as well. Um, is there anything else you need to do? And we, he'll do it all. Oh, well, um, um, and they said, oh, yeah, yeah. So then they trusted the, um, the uh, tradesmen to go out and do whatever they thought was necessary and do whatever the customer said. The, th they've done this for three years now. The customer, the clients can't believe it. Everything gets solved. The tradesman turns up and does everything, does everything in one visit. Owen is now delivering that service for just over 500 employees when previously he used to have 620. Customer levels of satisfaction have gone through the roof. People love it. The Audit Commission came and they said, bloody hell. What are you doing? You're not going and fixing the taps in that way. You're doing too much for your people. You're doing far too much. You're not following standard procedure. And it gave them two stars rather than four stars. It's all true. None of this is made up. It's a conversation I had today at four o'clock. This is what he told me. That's what I'm talking about. A model of centralization that isn't tied to what's good for tenants. What's he doing? He's having a mutualist reciprocal relationship through trust. Saying to the tradesman, I mean, you wouldn't do it in your own house, would you? Go in, tell me what needs fixing. You'd be like, Christ, what's he going to come back with? You know, the whole wall needs to come down. But because they have permanent relationships, because they wanted long-term people who they trusted, they essentially created a situation where everybody benefited. So they now have completely lessened the need they, got, they, they solve all needs at the beginning, and it's a far more effective service. Far more effective service. That's what I'm trying to talk about. That actually universalization doesn't give you universalization. It doesn't give you what you want. Back to the health service. <clears throat> it's certainly true that you need an aspiration for excellence, and you need it universally. But what I'm talking about is that what, the way the welfare state was enacted is it prevented exactly that sort of solution that I'm talking about. It, it prevented, the technical term is um, openness to demand variation. You know, uh, that's actually not a technical term, I just made it up. Um, and made it up very badly. Um, but it's being able to meet local need. So if you're in a situation where all your people smoke, you need more health services around people that smoke, and you need the ability to stop people smoking. But centralization means that everybody everywhere gets the same equal lumps of anti-smoking. So you can't really meet your need. So that's what I'm talking about. Hopefully that answered that one. Thank you. For two further questions, I'm sorry, I won't really take yours. Sorry, I, I, I didn't realize that I was making No, it just seemed ontologically disturbing. It's like Doctor anyway. Who. I thought something uh, terrible was going to happen. What I, Right, fine. Thank you. I think what you, the problem that you're addressing, it seems to me, is the what might be described 
demoralization of the working poor in British society. This is something I think that both the left and the right can agree upon. I mean, you talked about your conversation with uh, Paul Mason, a, a man of the left, and he would agree about that. But I think in order to remedy that very real problem, you, you have to have a clear understanding of why precisely that has happened. That's true, yeah. And your explanation of why that has happened seems to focus very much on changes in social values, in particular the role of the bohemian elite, the hippies, etc. Might I suggest that the real change that uh, the, the, uh, uh, perhaps uh, a, better, a more accurate explanation of that problem has been the collapse of heavy industry and employment for the working class. If you go back 30 or 40 years, I don't know, 10 million uh, working men were of, of little education were employed in heavy industry, manufacturing, engineering, etc., etc. And basically those millions of jobs, most of them have gone now. And it's that collapse of industry offering yeah. reasonably well-paid employment yeah. to the working poor that has gone. And I th I, it's not to do with the pill, I would suggest. It's not to do with the hippies. It's to do with global changes in industry. Okay. Now, I think if you identify that as a problem, man. how do you address yeah. that? First of all, let me say I agree with you. I'm not, I'm not trying to do some weird moralistic account that's kind of hysterical. I think, but I would want to argue that actually the destruction of social fabric is a necessary but not sufficient condition for what we see now. In the book Red Tory, what I actually talk about is the persistence of sectional and class-based interest in the UK. And I give sort of, let's uh, not a short history, if you will, of where our industry went wrong. And for me, the reason we got into that position, and I agree with you, is that we essentially, because we divided um, interests into the interests of labour and the interests of capital, because we essentially followed a class-based politics post-1945, we never did the long-term investment that would have meant our industry was modernised to cope with what happened. All across Europe they did. All across Europe, what they actually did is they localised their economy, they used all local savings and investment, um, and they, they turned that towards infrastructure and training. We didn't do any of that in Britain. If you look at the level of the number of apprenticeships in Britain in 1950, compare it to Germany, uh, this is from memory, so this might not be accurate, but it's something like six times bigger. Everything in our economy... I mean, what I argue in Red Tory is that we essentially followed a class-based politics. We followed uh, an old sectional politics that prevented us from renewing our infrastructure. So, so what I would say is, for me, that's the other side of the condition. But I think both are needed to actually explain what's going on. Because in lots of other areas of the world, you've had similar situations where capital's just said, sod it, I can get a higher return elsewhere. But you haven't seen the precipitate level of social collapse that you've seen. So I would want to say, like all true social phenomena, it's multivalent. But like all good historians, you can't say every effect is the same. Some are more important than others. But they would be two I would want to defend as important. One last question at the front. Um, I want to say I've enjoyed the very comprehensive sweep of the social philosophy that you've espoused this evening. Um, my interest for many years 
as an architect and planner has been the change in structures. And I think the first significant insight was more than 30 years ago when the phrase small is beautiful emerged. But that didn't generate any kind of movement because it was left as a kind of uh, aphorism, an aspiration that had no structure, no purposeful framework to uh, change the mm. political situation. But certainly the increased scale of almost every sphere of activity would seem to explain a great deal, if not the whole, of the social breakdowns uh, and the decadence in which we now live. Starting, one might say, with the social mobilities that the educational system um, uh, presented us with, in which young people were supposed to be sissies if they didn't go to university in a town 200 miles away from home. And my own son, who went to Bristol after university in his first year, came running back home after his first term. But he was not smart to let it be known that he was very uncomfortable. Could you draw um, this to a point yes. and not make a speech? Because we, um, we are running out of time. Okay. So. I think the, the central issue which is emerging now in the election and has emerged in two or three questions and comments is that of marriage. And I wanted to say that I'm greatly more pessimistic than you. It's not social conservation which suggests that we hold on to what we've got, but it's social reconstruction and the redevelopment of, of community which is needed. And I don't think that, that, I think that marriage at the moment is doomed. It's not, it's not in fact sustainable. Um, for various social reasons, mostly that it's not buttressed by the extended family around them, and that the extended family in turn was a part of a local community, and this created an ethos and a practical framework uh, which you. enabled can, can, can marriage to be successful and a very happy prospect, which it certainly isn't now. Okay, so thank you. the reconstruction has to be very fundamental. I understand. I think. I think that. Look, I kind of agree with you. I don't, I hate the sort of thinking that says, well, there's one thing, if we do it, everything will change. That's awful. But not all events are equal. And some events are more decisive. There's tipping points in all sorts of cultures and for all, in all sorts of ways. I guess what I'm trying to do, um, yeah, yeah, sorry, sorry, honestly. Um, Another way to make this more sort of modern is, uh, is, is social networks. Social networks are huge deliverers of influence and capital for like most people in this room. You know, by and large, most of you will be in the top probably 20 uh, percent of our society. You'll be highly engaged. You'll have lots of friends. You will exchange kind of all sorts of information that makes it highly advantageous for you. It's been demonstrated that the poorer you are, the less social you are, the more atomized you are, the less people you interact with, the less likely you are to have networks. That's why character, which is only ever socially formed, is now showing class-based um, outcomes. So the poorer you are, the less social you are, the less able you are to develop character. So even things like, and character is the persistence of a nature over time, one of those senses is discipline, and, and it's been demonstrated that the lower the income group you're in, the more incapable you are of concentrating, 
of interacting. And social networks, of course, is what makes people um, able to be hired. One of the reasons why, sort of, I mean, think of, think of modern Britain and think of yourself as, as an employer. You get a very well-educated European who's probably got a degree, who's charming, who has no social kind of anxiety, and they come up to you for a low-paid shop job. And then you get somebody from the bottom third of our society who's anxious, who's got social status issues, isn't comfortable. You're going to hire the, the well-educated European um, student. And the reason that European student is like that is because they have social networks, they have social capital. Until we can re reconstitute working class culture in a 21st century way, then these people will always be where they are now shattered, without any real options, and leading lives that are increasingly nasty, brutish, and short. Thank you.